Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Welcome to another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I'm the founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. The first offering of the platform is a public speaking course called Teach the Geek to Speak. To learn more about it, you can go to teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Today, my guest is Lizette Sutherland. She is a facilitator, author, podcaster, and speaker. She's an advocate for remote working, which is quite popular right about now, I think for rather obvious reasons. And her company, Collaboration Superpowers, is a champion for remote working. I am interested to learn more about the degree she got because when I saw what it was, I'd never heard of what I've never heard of it before. So I'm really looking forward to learning more about that. And then her her transition to self-employment and also her plans for collaboration superpowers. Welcome to Teach the Geek Interviews, Lizette. Thanks. I'm really honored to be here. I love geeks. Yeah, same here. So you know, I mentioned in the intro that you have a degree in a field I have never heard of in my life. In fact, I had to look it up <laughs> because I'd never heard it. But it's called watershed science. So <laughs> what is watershed science and what was your motivation to get such a degree? Uh, so, of course, I was 17 at the time when I went to college. So I don't know. As ever, you know, looking back, 17, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And what I wanted to do at the time was I wanted to be an environmentalist. And what I didn't realize is that you didn't need a degree to be an environmentalist, you could just be one. So I went off to college and tried to find something that was in the environmental realm. And I found watershed science because the professor that I went to speak to, he was uh, the head of the watershed science department. And I was just so impressed by him. You know, he had, he went into his office and he had papers stacked to the ceilings and whiteboards with stuff all over and kind of, you know, shirts hanging out. And he was like, hunched over his papers and I just sort of fell in love instantly. And watershed science is basically the study of water, its hydrology and groundwater, how water moves to the ground and how we use it. So that's where I started my career, but I certainly did not end up there. So so what you're saying is you could have walked into anyone's office and if they had a bunch of, of papers and stuff all over the place, you would have that's what you would have studied? I wouldn't, if they were geeky enough, uh, I mean, yeah, because I didn't know what I wanted to do at 17. I was kind of all over the place. So I really just fell into watershed science at the time. So, but it ended up being good. I had a career. I was a hydrologist for 10 years. I was uh, cleaning up hazardous waste sites in California uh, for a very long time and uh, used my degree for a while. And then I looked around the cube farm that I was working in one day and I thought, oh my God, this was not what I was envisioning for my life i've got to do something different interesting you know i've had a number of, of people on the po women on the podcast who started off doing something in the stem fields but then they left and the the narrative right now or at least and i've, I've been kind of curious as to why more women tend to leave stem than than men and the out the number of reasons i guess that are out there but i think the prevailing one is that the 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 the, the, the environment is hostile to women and it causes them to not want to be there anymore. They call it, I guess, the leaky pipeline. And so they can, they have, they can, they maybe are able to bring in women, but they have difficulty retaining them. When you left, you know, working as a hydrologist, was that something that you were planning on doing anyway, regardless of the environment that you were in, or did you leave because of issues with the environment that you were in? 
actually the office and the company that I worked for at the time was not hostile at all. It was really, it was, it was a luxury place to work. I mean, really, it was a wonderful place to work. And in fact, when I quit, my dad called me every week for a year because he literally thought I was on drugs because it was such a good job. For me, it was really that I had envisioned my life in a more artistic way and that I thought that uh, like a cube farm just wasn't, I, I felt like my soul was getting sucked out of my body every day that I went in there for some reason. It's just that the work wasn't fulfilling. It wasn't what I was looking for. And so I quit and I waitressed for a while until I met a geek in Los Angeles. And I call him geek because we actually, he organized a hiking group called Hike the Geek every Sunday. And every Sunday, me and a bunch of smart people uh, went hiking together. And he was building an online project management tool at the time. And he invited me to join his team to help build this software tool. But being in STEM, you might be interested, the reason why he was building the tool was because he didn't want to die. And he thought that if he could just get the right longevity scientists from around the world to collaborate with their data and their knowledge, that he could solve the problem of aging. So the, the reason why he was building this online collaboration tool wasn't just because he wanted to make money or build the tools, because he really wanted to, to, to get scientists to collaborate better together, because he thought he could solve aging. And for me, when I heard it, I thought, oh my God, what else could we do if we got the right minds working together, right? Like we could do global warming and cure cancer and, you know, just, so I kind of went down the rabbit hole from there. Interesting. Yeah. I, I never really thought of aging as something that needed to be solved, but yeah, I guess if you do want to live forever, <laughs> I guess that is something that, that would be a problem. Right, right. Pros die. and cons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And maybe it's better, but like, I love being alive. And I think he also really loved being alive. And so he wanted to just, you know, make it as long as possible. Yeah. I like being alive too. Life, life is great. <laughs> yeah, it has its ups and downs, but for the most part, I'm uh, I'm really enjoying myself. <laughs> yeah, this, this ride's been all right so far. So, I also mentioned in the in in the intro that you're a big fan of remote working. I think a lot of people are a fan of remote working, even before this whole uh, pandemic came came about. But it didn't seem like the companies were all that big a fan of remote working. <laughs> I mean, if you were able to to negotiate, perhaps working from home, maybe a couple of days a week or something like that, that's kind of maybe the best you could do in a lot of places, but it seems like a lot of the companies, at least before COVID, were really keen on having people on site. So where did this, where did your interest in remote working come from? Well, it actually started with uh, the guy that was building this online project management tool, because when I realized that it was, it was because we were trying to make location the independent variable that you know, that I thought, oh, what else could we do? And so I started just interviewing and looking at companies who were also working remotely to see what they were doing and how they were doing it. And that's when I got, that's when I sort of got obsessed with the topic was just seeing what are people doing out there? What best practices are putting, are they putting in place to make it happen? And of course, the freedom that it offered me personally uh, you know, once you've tasted that freedom, you're never going back to a cubicle farm again, not if you can help it, of, of course. I mean, I wouldn't say never, you know, if I really needed the money, I would totally do it like any job. But, uh, but yeah, I started because once I tasted freedom, I could never go back. And then I thought, oh, I would love to be able to offer this to other people as well. And uh, you're right, though, that a lot of companies didn't want to go remote before COVID. And I think it was mostly because managers thought that the work wouldn't get done. 
and that they were really afraid that people would just go home and be lazy and like watch Netflix on the couch. But what we've seen during COVID and actually what we've always known to be true is that people tend to overwork instead of underwork. And laziness is really not the problem. Burnout is definitely the thing that managers need to be more aware of when they go remote. So uh, if COVID had shown us anything is that people are not lazy for the most part and that, uh, and that we lo- you know, when we love our work, it's hard to turn off. Yeah. Because of the pandemic, do you think even after the, the, a vaccine comes out and perhaps it's even safer, you know, safe to go back to working on site, do you think these companies are going to change their tune and, and think that working from home might be the strategy going forward? Well, what I'm telling people is I really believe that the future of work is choice. So the choice for the individual to work when and where we're most productive, but also the choice for the company to decide how remote they want to be. I know that like Netflix in uh, San Francisco there, the CEO famously wants everybody to work back at the office again when COVID is over. And I think, great, like that's the company he wants to build. I'm sure there's a lot of people that want to work at the office again. So he'll attract the people that want to work there. I do think, though, that the vast majority of companies need to be setting up their uh, working practices to be hybrid, where some people are in the office sometimes and some people are at home, because so many people enjoyed working from home during COVID. I mean, you know, working from home during COVID is not the same thing as remote work, right? It's, it's a totally, we're working at home during a pandemic. It's totally different. Usually your kids aren't home. You know, you're not trying to homeschool them and share technology and Wi-Fi and have your whole family there while you're also trying to work. So it's not exactly the normal thing. But I don't believe that we're going to be, we'll never go back to the way it was. The remote movement has now gotten a huge boost. That being said, uh, people always, because I'm so enthusiastic about remote work, people always feel that uh, I really advocate for remote all the time. I really advocate for choice, like for the person and the company. Yeah, because there are, I mean, I, I mentioned that there are many that like working from home, but there are others that actually like going into the office. They, they like going around the water cooler and then talking to other people about what's going on in their lives and stuff. And then the other people that just kind of like hunkering down someplace and, and, and getting the work done. So I, I think, I think you're right. If companies, smart companies would be smart to offer that type of choice to people. Yeah. And then it just changes how our offices look, right? They become more of a collaboration space rather than, you know, like cube farms or office farms or something like that. But it's really, you know, uh, we'll need to, put better equipment in place, like conference rooms need to change to be able to accommodate remote attendees better. Uh, We'll need to be set up with virtual whiteboards so that people can whiteboard from home and from the office at the same time. You know, like the tooling and the infrastructures are going to have to change a bit to accommodate this new style of work. But I think once we're set up, sky's the limit. I mean, this is really the way to go. Yeah, I mean, and then not only that, but people can now live wherever they want. They don't have to live by where the company is. So maybe you could be making, you know, good Silicon Valley money, but you could be living in the, you know, the, the hills of Montana, not paying a whole lot of rent or, or mortgage, have a whole spread of, of land, but still be getting your work done. I'm sure your money goes a lot further in Montana than it does in San Francisco. Totally, totally. And I mean, since COVID, there has been kind of a, like famously from San Francisco, a mass exodus of people, like as Twitter closes down their office permanently or giving people the choice to work from home permanently, you know, and a couple of the other companies, there's been quite an exodus. 
So that's been interesting because I, you know, I lived in San Francisco for a long time and I recently went back after 15 years of not being there. And it was shocking how crowded, like you know, how much had changed in those 15 years. So I, I can understand that people would want to leave for a little bit more space. Yeah. I don't know if you answered this, but I'll ask anyway. I know you left your job as a hydrologist to, to start your own thing. Was it always your goal to start your own thing or, or did you kind of fall into that? Or were you actually thinking, maybe I'll, I'll go get a job someplace, but or get a job somewhere, but for, you know, starting my own business wasn't you know in the cards at the time. No, it was totally not in the cards to start my own business. I am by no means an entrepreneur. I uh, I fell into it, and then it sort of succeeded despite me. <laughs> I would say. I mean, I uh, my my the way that I've made it work is that I just worked really, really, really hard for a long time. Um, but I by no means am an entrepreneur. When I quit my hydrology job, my plan was to work as a waitress until I found something else. I, you know, I was a bit burned out after 10 years of uh, working in that field. And I thought, oh, I'm just going to like take a break, move into a really inexpensive apartment and uh, take a break and see what happens. And then after a year, I found this other job uh, where we were building an online project management tool. And even then I was working for uh, this other guy, this geek, I'll call him a geek because he ran Hike the Geek, and I, and, and I was working for him. And then I decided I was going to move to the Netherlands because I was working on an online project management tool where I could work from anywhere. So what was I doing in Los Angeles? I thought I could live anywhere. So it's a long story how I picked uh, the Netherlands. But when I got to the Netherlands, the company I was working for went out of business overnight. And so I had a choice to, I could stay in the Netherlands and see if I could make it work or I could move back home and uh and start over again and i thought well i'm going to do the same thing at home as i would here it's just a little bit more complicated might as well stay here so that's when uh you know i just uh, started working really really hard uh to make it work so it's not my intention to become an entrepreneur so, so when it comes to the work that collaboration superpowers does what is that work so what we do is we offer companies workshops, online workshops, for the most part. We also run a podcast, and we've got a bunch of free resources available, of course. But the bread and butter of the business is the Work Together Anywhere workshop. And what we do there is we bring companies together, and we teach them the basic skills of remote working. And it sounds a little funny, because when people think of remote working, they think of like umbrella drinks and, uh, you know, and beaches and like we're hanging out, but anybody that's ever worked from a beach knows that it's just not, it's just not possible. You get sun in the screen and sand in the keyboard, and that's not like, you know, it's not ideal. Um, and so I think what people, what people don't realize is that remote work is a new medium of working. Um, and it's different than in-person work. And when people, when COVID happened, people took what we did in the office and they translated it directly online. And really what it ended up being was endless online meetings. And that is not what remote work is supposed to be all about because, you know, it's virtual fatigue. We're getting burned out. And so, uh, so the Work Together Anywhere workshop basically helps people learn the new skills of this new remote medium. And so I was doing it uh, alone for a while, and then I got so much demand that what I ended up doing was licensing the material. And so now I have 70 facilitators who are giving Work Together Anywhere workshops all over the world as well, and they license the material from me. 
on an annual basis. So that allowed me to scale my company, but still stay a solopreneur because I didn't want to have employees or giant amounts of overhead. I wanted to be able to shrink and expand in accordance to demand. So, you know, when COVID hit, we really expanded the facilitator network. And then I'm sure as people go back to the offices because they're craving in-person time that will shrink again, you know, at some point, just depending on demand. So yeah, our bread and butter is the workshop. Okay. So when it comes to those facilitators that license the your the materials from you, is that is there ever a worry that they might go rogue and, and start doing their own thing based on your materials? Uh, you know, there there is always a worry for that, but I've just uh, I just decided I was going to trust that people would do the right thing, and uh, they could go out and you know, yeah, they've got all the material. They could then change it and make it their own and do their own thing. What the what they get by being a licensed facilitator is uh, one, they get all the updates that I make. I have all kinds of opportunities because I have companies coming to me saying, I need to train uh, 300 people. You know, so, and I, you can't, I'm not going to train them all by myself. So then I bring in other facilitators. So there's a lot more work that comes in. So yeah, you could go out and network on your own, but as a community, we're way stronger together and there's a lot more opportunities that come our way. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's absolutely true. So you mentioned that you have a podcast as well. So what, what's the podcast about and what could people hope to get from it? So the podcast is uh, stories of remote teams doing great things. And what I do is every other week I interview a company that's working remotely and we dive into what are the challenges that they face and you know what's really hard for them. And then what were the experiments that they took or that they did in order to improve their conditions. So it's all just about like things that work things they tried and worked or didn't work because there's a lot of like explosions out there too that I think are really fun to know about so yeah it's just it's interviews with companies who are like rocking the remote world and inspiring others hopefully uh, to do the same are they forthcoming with those failures or is this something you kind of have to to pull out of them uh Usually they're, I mean, what I, what I try to do is build some trust and rapport at the beginning of the interview so that they're more comfortable. But before they go on the show, I really tell them, you know, people are not here to hear like rah, 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 remote work rules. Like they're really here to hear what, what how did you solve the, the struggle? Because everybody's struggling. Like it's, you know, it's just like working with any team, even in person, there's going to be some things that come up and remote is exactly the same. Everybody's struggling. So you kind of want to hear yeah, you want to hear what the people have done. And I think in the community and in the circles that I run with and the people that I'm choosing, most people have an experimental mindset where they're used to failure and it's not such a bad thing. It's more of a learning opportunity. So failure might be the wrong word for it. It's more, it's like an experiment. Did it work or did it not work? And what did we learn from that experiment? Okay. Yeah. I, mean, I was just, I was just thinking that because you are an advocate for remote working you want to present it in the best light possible. You wouldn't want somebody to listen to a podcast episode. Here's these issues that they might have and say, you see, this is why we don't do no damn remote work. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, Back but I also don't want, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but I don't also don't want to pull the wool over people's eyes and have people think it's all umbrella drinks and pajama bottoms. You know, it's totally not that. It's totally not that. So yeah, I, I want to paint a fair picture and also just that people know that it's possible. And I think the, that was one of the biggest things that came out of COVID is that all the doubters really saw that it was possible if necessary. It might not be ideal or what we like, but it certainly is possible. I noticed also that you, you wrote a book. So what was the, the motivation for the book and what do you hope people get from that? 
So in the beginning, the book was just a was a lie to get people to uh, be interviewed on my podcast. So I would say like, "Hey, I'm writing a book, and I'd love to interview you as part of the the interview process for the for the book." <laughs> but I had no intention of writing the book. Uh, and then people started asking about the book, and what it turns out is that there was a real need on the market, which I didn't I didn't know. There's a real need on the market for a book like this. So. Uh, as soon as people start really started asking about the book, I thought, oh, no, I've got to write this book now. <laughs> so uh, so I, it took me a long time, and I learned that I'm not a writer. I had this romantic notion of like, oh, I'm going to like sit in my wood, my wooded cabin with cappuccinos and be a writer, and uh, it was nothing like that. It was really, really, really hard work. So what I hope that people get out of the book, though, um, is that there are concrete tips and practices. It's not theory. It's like, this is what so-and-so tried. This is what worked and what didn't work. Here's the tools that they used. Here's something that you can try. So it's concrete things that you can try on your remote team. It's not abstract, like uh, weird theory stuff. I really tried to make it practical because I don't know. That's just what I like. You know, I don't want to hear the abstract behind it. I want to know like, okay, how many push-ups do I need to do to get biceps? You know, I don't, I don't need to know all the stuff behind it. Yeah, I, I get you on that. When it comes to public speaking, is that something you've always been good at? And if not, what'd you do to get better at it? I don't think anybody's born being good at public speaking. I can't imagine. I mean, if they are like, oh, <laughs> praise. Uh no, but the thing about me, though, is I've never been afraid of it. I was never, I didn't start out being very good at it, but I was never afraid. And one of my mottos actually from the very beginning was if they're going to ask me, if they're going to give me a microphone and ask me to sing, I'm totally stepping up to the mic every opportunity I get. And I don't know where that came from. I'm just really glad that I have it because what I have noticed, especially in the beginning when I was doing podcasts, is a lot of women are so afraid to speak out either on a podcast or on stage that actually it ended up being a big advantage for me that because so many women said no, that I had a lot more opportunities because I was saying yes to all of them. And I was just, I'm just as scared as the other people. I'll tell you that before every talk I'm trembling and I'm just freaking out. But, uh, but I feel the fear and do it anyway, as I think the difference. And so um, the thing that I did to get better at it is I joined Toastmasters that was awesome. That was probably the best thing that I could have done. And then when I got talks that were really high profile, like the TEDx talk and a couple of other ones, I hired a coach to help me prepare the talk and to help me practice. And I'll say some of the tips, like one of my favorite tips from the speaking coach that I got, he said, practice in different um, pitches of your voice. So like do the whole talk in a really low voice and then do the whole talk in a really high voice because when you get nervous, the pitch of your voice changes and it will distract you on stage if you're not really used to that in the beginning. So, and like also practice laying down, practice standing on one foot, practice standing on a chair and like in different directions. Cause he said, when you're on stage, like random things will happen and you'll need to be used to the distraction. So if you've practiced with random distractions, then you're more, your brain is just more adapted to whatever circumstance that you're going to be in. So I used to like go to the park and practice on a park bench. And then I would like practice in my room. And then I would go to another place and like lay down on the floor and practice looking up at the ceiling. And it was weird. Like, no, I closed the curtains. (laughs) Nobody saw, but uh, it totally helped in terms of, and so I think in order to be a good public speaker, the, the key is practice. So you would close the curtains when you were practicing at home, but there were no cl- there were no curtains to close when you were standing on the park bench. 
<laughs> yeah, that's true. Then, then it, I just looked like a crazy woman talking to myself on the park bench, but I thought, you know, there's <laughs> no, nobody's bothering me. And uh, yeah, it, it just really helped. You know, you got to practice in lots of places. Yeah, for sure. When you, when it comes to your presentations, do you have a process for putting them together? And if so, what is it? I use the beyond bullet points format. And uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the book, but it's a, it's a brilliant book called Beyond Bullet Points. And in that, um, they basically, there's a formula that one uses to create your talks. And one is you start out with like the role, like who are the audience members in relation to your topic. And then there's a setting. And then you want to take people from point A to point B. And like, what is that? What is point A and what is point B? Where do you want people to go and what will they walk away from? And so I use the whole, I, every, every speech that I give, I start with the Beyond Bullet Points template and I just work through the template and then I massage it from there. And, uh, and then I get my slides professionally designed so that they are beautiful. One of the things that I've noticed on stage is that um, it matters if things look good or not, like, or even when I give my virtual presentations, like it matters, it, you know, it's not going to make or break the talk. If you have a really good talk, if your slides are ugly, it won't really matter, but when they're beautiful, it doesn't hurt. So, and I get dressed up. Like I wear really bright clothing and my, in my, uh, my brand colors, hot pink and other neon things. And uh, what I, I used to manage bands a long time ago. And one of the things that I learned from managing bands was Nobody wants to see their favorite rock star on stage in their sweatpants and a t-shirt, right? We want to go to a show and we want to see gods and goddesses up on stage entertaining us. And so I kind of took the same spirit of that when I give my presentations and that I always dress really nice and then it makes me feel good. And, you know, the pictures are always fun, but, you know, people want to see something larger than life. So that's, that's sort of the influence I took from my band days. Wow. Interesting. I, you know, you've offered some really interesting tips that I never even considered before, I, especially the one about staying on a park bench and, and practicing your, your presentation. <laughs> <laughs> if you're in San Francisco, nobody will even like blink twice, right? Because there's enough people outside talking to themselves. <laughs> right. You'll around. blend in for sure. <laughs> you're just one of the population. <laughs> you're just one of, one of the regulars. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I really like your, your point about feeling the fear and doing it anyway. I mean, that that doesn't just apply to public speaking, that, but that just applies to life in general. I mean, yeah, I, I really like that one. And then, the, 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 you know, using different pitches and then also, you know, just doing your, your speeches or your presentations in, in different ways so that you can get used to distractions. I think that's an, a, an excellent tip as well. Are there any others that you'd like to offer? Um, so this kind of a, it's almost already been said, but one of the things that now that I've got a niece and nephew and they're three and six, and so they're, they're, they're this weird age. Um, but one of the things that I've noticed with them is that the first time you do anything, it's going to always be super scary. So we, we have that conversation every time we go out and do something new. I'm like, okay, it's going to be scary the first time, right? And they're like, yeah, it's scary the first time. And I'm like, but we're going to do it anyway, right? So I guess it goes back to the whole feel the fear and do it anyway. So I always just tell people it's going to be scary. Whatever you try the first time, it's going to be weird and scary, and you're not going to be very good at it. I would just push through and keep going. One, yeah, that's, that's, that's excellent advice. Is there anything else that you'd like to add about things that you're working on, Lizette? Well, one of the things uh, that's happened in the last few months is that I've gone to a lot of online conferences where I'm just watching people give talks on video, and I'm thinking – 
why are we all gathering in this place like to watch recorded videos online like why can't we just watch this on youtube on our own time like you know why are we here at this online conference so it was one of those situations where i was thinking like this is where we took something where we did in person and we translated it online and it's not really working that well i mean people are still going but i think it's because we're not used to anything different so one of the projects that i'm working on right now with my facilitators is uh, what we're calling the workshop extravaganza and we'll be offering it in the spring um, and what this is, is just a series of online interactive workshops. And the rule is no presentations and no PowerPoints, just workshopping. So because people can watch presentations online on YouTube. So why we don't need a conference for that. So we're going to offer a conference that is just workshops, no presentations, no PowerPoints, only active, engaging uh, discussions and, and workshopping together online. So that's something that I'm excited about because I think that that is a format, an online format that needs to change. And I don't know that my format is going to be the one that it's changing to, but I'm really tired of watching presentations online personally. <laughs> and they're all like mostly mediocre and you can find a really well-produced YouTube video, right? Oh man, so, you're making me laugh <laughs> because there's so many, you're right, there are so many, especially the ones that I want you to pay. You know, you you say you put down your money, your twenty dollars, twenty dollars, however many, how much money they want you to pay, and you gotta sit down in front of your computer and look at this person and and try to, and and they they these people they try to they they do their best, you know, to engage you, but it's really difficult to do through a screen. You're absolutely right, and and yeah, I, I don't I don't know the I don't know the answer to that either, but I, I wish you well in 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 what you and well, you and your facilitators are doing. The workshop Thanks. extravaganda, spring of twenty twenty one. Look out for it. For yeah, sure. <laughs> look out for it on the website. Yeah. Nice. How can people get in touch with you, Lizette? CollaborationSuperpowers.com. All my information is there. If you click on contact us, it goes straight to me. So I mean I've got a team of people working with me, but I see all the emails. So if you if you email, I'll I'll see it. Wonderful. Well, everyone, that marks the end of another edition of Teach the Geek Interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I am the founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. First offering is Teach the Geek to Speak. It's a public speaking course. You can find out more about it at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Thanks, Lizette. Thank you. Well, everyone, that marks another episode in the can. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like these episodes and want to support Teach the Geek, please subscribe, share, and like on any of your favorite podcast platforms or on all of them also if you prefer to watch the episodes head on over to the youtube channel at youtube.teachthegeek.com until next time <laughs>